0: On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for thirty-five years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Wayne Mullins is a husband, father of four, founder, CEO, entrepreneur, and author. He's um, a generous soul, a a risk taker, and an out-of-the-box, against-the-grain thinker and leader. Over the past 20 years, Wayne Mullins has scaled multiple companies, helped hundreds of entrepreneurs do the same with their companies. He influences over 250,000 entrepreneurs annually through his blogs, books, training programs, and he has personally worked with clients in over 100 industries. That's a pretty broad experience uh, from every corner of the globe. Uh, Ugly Mug Marketing has won praises from some of the leading influences in the business world, and um, I am so excited to have Wayne Mullins on
1: the Deal Quest podcast. Wayne, welcome. Thank you so much, Corey. I'm excited for this conversation today. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so listen, you know, before we get into everything you do and your personal experiences and in terms of buying and selling companies now and, and how you work with clients. Um, and even though it's on the marketing side, which we consider organic growth and not the topic of this podcast, it does influence uh, you know what they do in terms of their deal stuff. So we're going to look at that angle of it. But before we get into all of that, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. Uh, what did you want to be? Because my bet is that owning a marketing company and, you know, having bought and sell companies and doing all the stuff you do probably wasn't it at that age. But you
1: tell me maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, I, I don't think that was it. Um, but to be honest with you, Corey, I don't know what was. I know from a very young age, though, I was very entrepreneurial minded. Um, yes. I do know that, you know, when my friends would come over, I would actually pay them in baseball cards to go out and help me pick up tin cans so that I could then take those tin cans and go sell them and get some money for those cans. So uh, I do remember that. I I always did lawn care work growing up, you know, from very, very early age. And so it's it's in my DNA, I guess, kind of this entrepreneurial spirit.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because you might have answered uh, my second question, which I always ask, which is, um, you know, what was your first deal that you could, you know, remember of any type even when you were a kid and you just described a a barter deal where, uh, what you gave baseball cards in exchange for services, <laughs> you know, so, but anything else
1: come to mind? No, I, that's, that was probably the very first deal I ever did. Um, Good. I remember specifically my parents weren't too happy when they found out because <laughs> they're the ones who'd given me all those cards for Christmas. But, um, I was after the money so the cards had to go I had to go trade in the cans and, and get the money
0: so 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 wait so not only did you barter cards for, for money but you actually bartered cards you didn't pay for so it was free free resources that you could trade <laughs> there you go <laughs> Yeah, definitely a good deal for you I love that I love that you know it's a, I I you know it's funny because um you know I'm sort of the same way I was a born entrepreneur as well and I have all these stories from when I was a Kid and running businesses and having employees when I was 15 and blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, it's always fascinating to meet folks like that. And then, you know, listen, there are some very successful situational entrepreneurs, like people who don't have that DNA, so to speak, from a young age, but they were in a particular situation and it came up. So it's always it's always interesting to see the differences, you know, uh, uh, of how people get to their entrepreneurial journey.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, and it's, I guess it goes back to the old question, the old question of, you know, is, is it something you're born with or is it something that you've you learned over time? And, you know, from my experience, I would say, like you, you just said, it's, it's a combination of both. It can be it can definitely be learned. And uh, I think some people that are just more wired that direction, you know, by nature.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, you know, and I feel like uh, for me, you know, although I did it for a period of time early in my career to get experience. You know, it's almost like I can't breathe if I'm not an entrepreneur, like I could, you know, like I could never imagine. I mean, listen, you never know what life brings you. But, uh, you know, I could never imagine going back. And in fact, the one time that I was in a partnership, you know, with my law firm where I had merged my firm into someone else's, and they were really the major player, at least, in the, you know, in the beginning, and it it started feeling like a little bit like a job, like I didn't have... Uh, control you know I was like all right (laughs) no I'm unmerging
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I I can definitely relate I've had uh, you know since I graduated from school I guess that was a little over 20 years ago I've spent a total of three years working for someone else in that 20-year period so uh, I can relate
0: pretty pretty impressive I've got I've got a friend uh, who's in my entrepreneurs forum who actually never worked for someone else at least not not as a you know an adult uh he uh, he started a uh, graphic design company on the side in college, and then just graduated and had a company. So I'm always like, you know, like that that amazes me, right? You know. Um, any case, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. Um, uh, well, g- give people like uh, beyond your bio, you know, just a couple of minutes on on what you do on the marketing side for companies, and then I want to go, you know, go back to your personal deal experience, and then how what you do ties into
1: even deals for clients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, from a marketing perspective, typically clients who reach out to us, um, they reach a point where they realize that what has been taking place internally is no longer working. Um, they've got usually it's a it's an employee or someone on their team who is fulfilling a role and doing marketing as well within their company, and so it, it's when they reach that point where they realize that they're leaving so much more on the table that if they were strategic in the way they approach marketing, um, if they had someone who was dedicated to that, who was results you know, focused, that they could be accomplishing and achieving more. And so those are typically the companies when and where we get brought in. And that varies a little bit from, from company to company, but that's generally speaking where we come into the picture.
0: Great, uh, in any particular sectors or industries or size or anything like that?
1: <laughs> I wish, um, you know, I've been given this advice so often that, you know, if we just picked a niche or just picked a vertical and and we dove into that, my life would be so much simpler. And, you know, the systems and processes would all work so much better. But to be honest with you, Corey, I love the diversity. I love this morning, getting to work on something for a nonprofit organization. And, you know, this afternoon having a completely different conversation. You know, our our clients range from, you know, I would say that probably much pretty much across the board other than nonprofits, you know, a million plus in revenue. Our largest right now is gonna do this year somewhere around close to 600 million in revenue.
0: So, but Yeah, broad range. Uh, well, listen, it keeps it interesting. Uh, you know, trust me, I can relate to that because I always had, you know, uh, a legal practice that represented clients across all kinds of industries, and we still do. And then I developed this niche in financial services with investment advisors. And so we sort of have a combination of both because we've got half the firm that has a very, you know, niche uh, focus and it's been great for us. And we have great referral sources and we know the industry and we systemize things and we built a reputation. And, and, you know, if you, if you Google RIA lawyer, we show up in the top three, which is ridiculous because it's impossible, you know, all all that good stuff. But at the same time, like I, the other half of the firm, we do all kinds of industries. And I, I think I would, I love the investment advisor space, but if I only had that, I think, you know, I think it'd drive me crazy. I need I need some variety. So we, you know we do deals and contracts across i mean you name it like you guys you know we have so many other uh, industries as well so i get it okay so uh let's talk a little bit about so you you have personal experience with doing a deal with selling selling a company right um so let's let's talk about what, you know what was that company and you know how did it lead up to uh you know to choosing to sell it and uh, you know what did that look like
1: yeah, absolutely. So um, this company, so when I, when I first graduated from school, thanks to Zig Ziglar, who uh, maybe you are familiar with and some of your listeners are familiar with, um, at one time, you know, very popular motivational and sales trainer. Um, because of his influence, I knew I wanted to go into sales. So graduated from school, went into sales. And over the course of about a two-year period, I really honed my sales skills. I, I was terrible at the beginning, got good. And you know, at that point, I started looking at my paycheck. Started looking at the amount of money I was bringing in for the company. And I was like, "Man, this this gap is getting bigger and bigger here." Like, I, I need to do something about this. So, I decided to go do something on my own. Like, what if I took those skills and went and did something for myself? You know, at that time, the easiest thing that I knew to do was actually go back and cut grass and build a lawn and landscape company. And so, over the course of a three year period, we took That company, I say we, is my wife and I, but we took the company from uh, zero and we grew it to a very large size company. Um, it was at that point that it was either expanded to other markets, other territories. So we're in a fairly small region. The population here, the biggest town is 48,000, you know, kind of the, the total area. It's probably about 100,000 in a 30 mile radius, something like that. Let people know where you are. Yeah, I'm in Alexandria, Louisiana. So if you look at Louisiana on a map, we're right in the middle of the state, yep. you know, often say, you know, when you, if you think of Louisiana, you often think of New Orleans. And if you think of all the sights and sounds and the pictures and the images you you would experience in New Orleans, now picture the polar opposite of that, that is Alexandria, Louisiana. That's where I'm at. <laughs> Love it. Um, yeah. So it reached the point where, where it was generating very good revenue, very good profit, um, had all the systems and processes in place. It was to the point that the last year, um, I didn't didn't spend any time outside whatsoever. My time was all spent, you know, inside the office. And to be honest with you, I got kind of bored that last year. Um, But the idea of expanding to this other territory, which was about 80 miles away, I just wasn't overly interested. Um, At the time, my true knowledge about business, like actually operating a, a business, um, was very limited. I, I knew marketing. I knew sales. I did that well, um, but decided that that I wanted to get out of it. So I called up a business broker, which we don't even have one here. <laughs> I had to call one from a bigger city, and said, "Hey, you know, here's what I've got. Here's the company. I'll send you over the financials." Which, you know, I'd had an accountant doing our financials every month and all that stuff. So I had all that, and lo and behold, within two weeks, we had a couple of different offers. Wow. Own the company. And again, I went into this completely blind Corey. Like I had no clue if I was getting a good deal, a bad deal. I was trusting this broker who I'd never met before. Uh, so that was my first experience in, you know, growing a company and then exiting a company. And all that happened within a, a three year window. Yeah, it was an exciting time.
0: So, so in hindsight, you know, you said you didn't, you know, you you were sort of a neophyte at that. You didn't, you work with a broker, you didn't know, you know. In hindsight, uh, are you happy with the deal that ended up occurring, or now that you're smarter and wiser, would you have done anything different?
1: Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. Obviously, um, I'm happy with the deal that that went through because in the time it was it was a great deal um, yeah. for me. It, at least it looked that way on paper, and the check I received was it was good for me. But in hindsight, having you know, knowing now what I know, if I could bring that backwards, I know for a fact that with just making some tweaks in terms of the way we operated and tweaks in terms of the way that we handled expenses and we handled revenue, things like that, that the company could have sold for probably two to three times as much, mm. um, you know, had I just taken what I now know and brought it backwards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I, I love your attitude. It's not like, would have done something different now because it doesn't mean you regret the deal then, right? You know, then was then. You you're in the space you're in. You're happy with it, but you know we all learn and 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 grow. I mean, I, uh, I tell a story where I started my first business with employees when I was 15. I literally used to deliver flyers door to door in Brooklyn, and I, I had my friends and I kind of my own accounts, right? I had been working with somebody, got my own accounts. And, uh, I was making like 300 bucks a week in the seventies as a 15 year old kid, which was, I mean, stupid money, right? Like, and then I went over to college and, and, and I just left the business. I, I had no idea. I didn't even understand you could sell a business. Like there was enterprise value. I had accounts, I had clients. I, you know, I could, I didn't even think to sell it. So, you know, we all, we all learn, you know, <laughs> so in terms of that, uh, I just one to two more questions on that. We'll move on. But, um, you know, in terms of that experience of working with a business broker, because that's a, that's a, uh, a lot of small businesses have that, you know, question. Hey, I mean, they're too small for an investment banker, right? So if they're going to get anybody interested, it'll be a business broker. I will tell you that, uh, you know, in my experience, there's a let's say a very broad range of level of skill and integrity (laughs) amongst uh, uh, business brokers, you know? So, uh, you know what, I mean, we don't have to name any names, whatever, you know, like, what was it working with an intermediary generally? Like, what was that experience uh, like, you know, what's the, what's the value of that? And um, do you see you, I mean, your clients nowadays, I know you work with clients who are doing deals. Are they working with some sort of intermediary as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for, for me, Corey, what I would say is that in that moment, in that time, um, it was the only option I really had. I just right. didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the the network to make that happen. Um, so for me, it was very much a transactional thing. Um, they had a pool of potential buyers that were interested in businesses. I didn't know where to go find that, you know, given the size and, and the, you know, the geography that we lived in. Yep. And so that transaction for me, though, um, there was not much value, I would say, brought to that in terms of you know, maybe we could have structured things differently and negotiated more. Maybe there was, and and so, you know, I, I don't discredit what they did or how they structured the deal or anything like that. I walked away happy and I'm, you know, still, like I said, it, it worked out well for the time. Um, but, but what I would say is that, you know, I would highly, highly recommend working with someone else who's been through it before. So even if you choose to go with a broker, find a peer, find a mentor, find someone who has either bought or sold before because their knowledge in terms of, you know, how to structure it, even the way that financials are put together, all that, that information can make such a big difference, um, not only in the sale, but then what takes place after the sale, the transition, how smooth that process goes, all of that, that stuff is just so invaluable. So I, I highly recommend um, work with somebody who's done it before um, you know, if you're if you're novice and you, you don't know all the the financial details and how to structure a deal and all that stuff, then definitely bring in some other outsiders to get second opinions on what's taking place.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it totally makes sense. All right. So then, so you sell this company, and then and then uh, did you start uh, your current company right after that, or, was, or were there other stops along the way?
1: Yeah. So it was um, very indirect. So in the course of growing that company uh, over that three year period. Um, we literally were from startup to we were probably the largest in our region, um, which again, we're a small region. I'm not making it sound like we're, you know, taking over the world here, but um, we, we captured a lot of attention because in that short period, we were nobody to now we're seen everywhere. And so it was in the course of that growth that um, clients of the lawn care company started coming to me and asking me for advice on how to grow their business. Uh-huh. So we see you growing so quickly. What are you doing? Not only, customers and clients of the lawn care company, but even other entrepreneurs in the area, I had some of them reach out to me. Um, And it was as a result of of some other entrepreneurs reaching out to me that um, I began actually, I was actually co-owner in a couple of coffee shops for a while. During that time, they approached me, they pitched me a deal to go into that, to help them grow and scale that company. Um, and so it was out of those conversations and kind of the side consulting things that I was doing that eventually the current company Ugly Mug Marketing would be born.
0: Got it. So let's talk about those coffee shops and those other little you know businesses. That so you know how were those deals structured? If you're willing to say, were, were those the kind of thing where hey, we see that you're great at marketing and sales, and we'll give you a piece of equity to do that? It was, you know, was it was it an equity for services kind of arrangement? Did you invest? Uh, anything you want to share on those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so the the initial one was just equity for services. So they'd seen what I'd done there. Um, then we we took that to the next level, that location to the next level. And so they were looking at a second location, opening up an additional location. At that point, they offered additional equity if I wanted to invest in that second location. Um, so that took place as well. So then I've got pieces of both of these uh, taking place. And both of those I took to the level where I thought that I could add value. And at that point, I actually exited both of those locations. So I walked away. They maintained the businesses. Um, but again, it was taking what I knew from my experience, applying it in their specific industry, and in essence, you know, created a very nice payday for me.
0: That's great. Yeah. And, uh, and listeners, um, a few months from the time this will air, if you look back a few months, uh, yeah, I don't have the episode number in front of me, but I did a solo cast on doing deals where you get equity for services and the, you know, potential ways you can structure it, the p- potential pitfalls. You know, um, I think what happens is o- over your career, no matter what you do, if you're really good at it, you know, you're probably going to get pitched those kind of deals uh, from time to time. And the question is whether they, you know, whether or not they make, they make sense. And I'll give you the one bottom line tip listeners that I give in that, but it's worth listening to that episode And that is, I always say to folks, you should evaluate that like you're making an investment decision. So in other words, if somebody offers you equity uh, for services, you should say, treat it as if you got paid for the services cash. And then you said, okay, am I going to invest that cash in this company? right? For equity, because that's essentially what happened. What's happening, you're just missing a step. And if your answer is you wouldn't make that investment, then you may not want to do that equity uh, for services deal, or you may want to do a partial deal or things like that. So in any case, you can look, I don't want to go too far on that. I did a whole solo cast on it. You can go check that out. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So wait, so then you exited uh, those, uh, sounds like you sold the equity back or, or two, uh, the, the the operating partners, the original clients of yours or partners of yours uh, that were running the company.
1: Yes, that is correct. They they bought back my share of the equity in those companies. Great,
0: great. So that's great. So you know you got to monetize that. Sounds like a you know at a nice profit. So now you start uh, ugly mug marketing, and again, so let's 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 tie this over, right? Because uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you know my listeners know we make a big distinction between organic growth, which marketing and sales is on that side, and deals. Uh, but there are ways that you and you have some I know stories and examples that you can give us about clients you've worked with, where the organic growth support that you give has impacted. Uh, their ability to do deals or, you know, leverage them, put them in a better position, certainly maybe, you know, I would assume to get better um, enterprise value or sales prices or, you know, leverage or whatever. So let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. How does the work you do help your clients do deals and, you know, give us uh, some examples?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of our clients just recently in, in the past 60 days, um, they were actually acquired by a large uh, holding company in we have been working with this client for about two years, give or take, I'm probably off a little bit on that, but about two years. And, um, after the, the initial kind of onboarding with the client and, you know, the the general, like, you know, here's what we're going to do. And here's what we need you to do. Um, the conversation kind of came up very subtly that they were looking for an exit. They were looking for an exit. And so over time, those conversations shifted and What that means for us is we needed to not only give credence or or justice to marketing their existing products to the consumers out there, but we also needed to ensure that the messaging that was taking place was attractive and appealing to prospective buyers. And so the biggest, I'm going to jump to the end and then I'll come back. But the biggest takeaway is this, that if you are positioning yourself for acquisition, You want to treat that audience as a potential marketing person. In other words, your messaging, the way that things get communicated, you need to have that person, that audience in mind with everything you're doing from a marketing perspective because they're watching those things or they're going to look at them at least when they do their due diligence on your company. So... What I would say is that there are different types of organizations that are taking place. And one is the scale side. So when we're coming in, someone's looking to scale um, and there's marketing things that are done around that. Um, and that's organic, what you're talking about. There's a lot in that, in that particular space. Um, the other side of that is the selling side. And so for us, when we're working with these, these clients, we actually help position them and their ads around where the conversations had started, With prospective buyers. Mm. So, we wanted marketing messages to show up in the areas and around the topics of this particular industry that we were working with. So, again, I I think one of the best examples I've ever heard of this or or read of this was I forget the exact title of the the name of the book, but it's the the, um, biography written about Elon Musk. And in that biography, um, the author goes into great detail about how when Elon Musk had his company, I think it was X.com maybe, and they would merged with PayPal, how every single thing they did was crafted around the ability to attract investors into that organization. And so for anyone listening, what I would say is that if that is where you're going, in other words, you're looking to be acquired, you're looking to sell, make sure that that is in your mind as you're doing your other marketing as well. Make sure you're speaking to those prospective buyers as well.
0: I love that. And it's, you know, it's interesting because the full thinking is that, well, I mean, when you do marketing it's to your customers and clients or prospects, right? You know, that's, that that's what you do marketing for. And I love this perspective because it comes up in several, like I, I, um, one of the things I talk about with uh, a lot of my financial industry clients is you know, they're looking to bring in other assets in the management, the other advisors, people who manage money, and uh, I always ask them, "What is your value proposition to these folks?" And that is a different value proposition than they have to the customers and clients, right? Those people they actually manage the money, and and it's especially true in that in the financial services industry because it's super competitive to get great talent and people who who, who control money, and a lot of times they haven't thought about it before, and it's a similar thing, right? It's another constituency or stakeholders or what we're going to call a market, right? That you need to have a message to and, uh, you know, or I I say the same thing on the, uh, on the buyer side, right? Why should somebody, I mean, especially in any industry where it's competitive, we have a lot, I mean, financial services, tech, healthcare, there's a lot of industries where there's a lot of competition for, for deals right now, even with the, with the bumps in the stock market and everything, there's still a lot of money out there and um, it's really a, a seller's market. So, you know, the way you communicate the value proposition of why you should, somebody should sell to you, right? Is the other side of what you're talking about. And uh, you know, and I, I raise that with clients all the time. Do you have, do, do you have you worked with clients on that side as well? Uh, the buying side, where they're creating a message that might attract other companies who might wanna join them?
1: Um, so not directly. Um, one, of, one of our companies that we work with right now, um, they're in a huge acquisition phase. Um, So they've gone in the past probably four years, they've gone from two or three locations to now they're at 53 locations in probably seven States, something like that. And so we're, we're working with them on their marketing. And then as they acquire, we take over marketing of the new locations. But, but again, I think part of that marketing message is the same. So in other words, when they're going out to, to pitch, to acquire another company, those owners are looking back and seeing what's taking place. How are they treating their their team members, right? And all of those things, if done thoughtfully, can be reflected in your public marketing. Yeah. Um, and when an acquisition does take place, one of the, the, the things that, again, I don't, we can dive down this rabbit hole or not, but one of the things that we do help people do is how do you actually market to the team, to the, the employees, the team members, on the company you've just acquired. Because depending on the way the acquisition's taken place, and we've worked with clients on both sides where it's uh, it's publicly known ahead of time, both you know employees on the new, new team you're acquiring know about it. Um, but we've also worked on the other side where day one, they come in, they take over email, they take over everything. By the way, we're the new owners, welcome to the team. And so we do work with them on what is the messaging? How do we communicate what is about to take place? Because anytime there is change, so in an acquisition, either side of the table, anytime there is change, there is going to be loss or at least perceived loss. And so when I'm speaking that, I'm speaking from the team member's perspective. So the the people who work for the company that just got acquired, in their mind, they're losing something. They're giving up something even though things may actually get better, they're losing the fact that things are no longer going to be the way they were. That's and so anytime there's loss, there's going to be grief. In other words, they're going to go through a grieving process. And if you can help them walk through that grieving process quickly, help them overcome the belief that the losses are going to be worse than they are, the sooner you can get back up to production levels and the sooner you, know, you don't have to worry about um, team members exiting and all the gossip that takes place, the water cooler talk and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, no question. And and that is, um, you know, I have this uh, 10 step uh, video uh, that I talk about in terms of uh, doing deals. And one of the steps that I talk about is the communication strategy externally and internally, right? The communication strategy to all the stakeholders. And you're absolutely right. You know, the employees are definitely uh, one of those. And, and that's a place where, you know, you see in the post, um, you know, if you do a, a debrief of various deals, you see where you know some companies have done it really well and some companies have not done it well at all. Uh, you know, and the, and, and uh, you know, no matter when it's been, uh, it's always a mistake not to do that well. And certainly in a time now when it's when talent is tough to find, right? And the job market's tight, you certainly don't want to be alienating good folks and losing them or having them be demotivated. De- 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 uh, that could really adversely affect the value of what otherwise might look like a great deal. So that communication strategy work that you guys do
1: internally with the, you
0: know, for the employees is, is absolutely crucial. Absolutely
1: crucial. And, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think the other component of that is the way that it's presented and packaged. Right. So I mean you you can send something out that that is just an email and that's going to communicate, even though it's the same words, that's going to communicate the message one way. Or you could print a letter and you could hand address it to each person. Same exact words. It's going to communicate a message differently to that person. And so one of the things that, that we talk with them about is um, perception becomes reality. Sure. And so the way that they perceive those initial messages and that initial communication is going to set the tone for the relationship going forward as you're bringing them into you know, your, your company or whatever it may be
0: yeah do they feel valued do they feel heard and seen uh, are there you know you talk about loss uh, i mean no question and 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 you know like you know risk i mean i you know Jeff, i have a, i have a phenomenal employee who is uh you know but anytime we change anything significant i'm not even talking about m a level i'm talking about you know a new a new system a new whatever a new hire you know um she's just you know one of those people who doesn't love change right and she's gotten so much better she's you know um but uh you know so even in that mini situation I'm always thinking okay you know how how am I going to communicate to her the value and how this is going to be good for the company and good for her in the long run and you know so she you know is open to it um because you know listen resistance from employees I mean whether it's adoption of a new software system or whatever you know I mean you know, yeah, I hear people all the time is in the entrepreneurial community going around and asking, oh, which CRM should we use? Or which, you know, and the answer from every professional, the first one is whichever one your people will actually use. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know, if yeah. it's got 20 more bells and whistles, but they're not going to use it, it's not, you know, that's not the yeah. choice. So, yeah.
1: Absolutely.
0: Good um, stuff. So, listen, with your experience uh Any other things that come up? Any other lessons or or things that you think might be valuable in terms of the role that you've played, you know, on maybe how marketing relates to, you know, successful deals or anything else that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, I I just think that, you know, it's the intentionality. So whether you're scaling, whether you're selling, or whether you're maybe doing succession planning, um, the intentionality behind the messaging matters. And I think a mistake that so many make is that they, they think of marketing as this thing we do to the public or we do for the public, for the prospects. But in reality, marketing is about communication. It's about persuasion um, through your messaging. And so it's with intention that you can smooth so many of the obstacles, so much of the resistance by clearly articulating, clearly marketing internally. You know, whether that's to your team, that um, you know, you're know you about to sell or you're about to buy or you're about to have a bunch of new teammates because we're acquired, whatever that may be, or succession, same thing. Um, so it, it's about communication, but what I would say is it's not just about saying the things. It's about crafting those things in such a way that are meaningful to them. And that in and of itself is marketing. It's just that internal marketing that's taking place.
0: Love it, love it. So I I have another question for you. It's not necessarily directly deal related, but I'm curious uh, because, you know, you are in this small market, right? Uh, But yet you've worked across industries, across geographies, you know, et cetera. So how does a small company, I mean, other than the fact that obviously you're great at marketing, because that's what you do, so that would be the easy default answer, right? (laughs) How does does a company in a small market like yours um, get the kind of clients and reach that you've been able to do?
1: Yeah, the answer, Corey, I would say is we play the long term game. So we're not playing the short term game. And in the early years, that is very costly. In other words, there's things we could have done with our resources in terms of money and ad spend and marketing that would have produced much quicker returns for us. But we are playing the long game. So we are investing in relationships. You know, um, we've been fortunate to work with a few different New York Times bestselling authors. And all of those come to us through referral, through word of mouth. Um, we're working with, we got clients in Hollywood and Beverly Hills right now. We are working with um, a, a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills, who was the original Dr. 90210 um, back when that series launched. And again, it's because we've invested in these relationships and we play in this long-term game Um in terms of our marketing. So it's not about a transaction for us. It's about a relationship. And, you know, at the end of the day, it it's really goes back to what we all know to be true is that when you treat people as human beings, and when you do what's truly in their best interest at some point, that's going to come back to you. And for us, it certainly has.
0: That's great. Yeah. Listen, it seems like you built a phenomenal company. It's, you know, you love what you do. I love, uh, I mean, obviously, it's not all what you do. We focused on the deal angle of it here because that's what this podcast is about. But you do all kinds of marketing, you know, for for, for various companies and, um, uh, you know, and, and, and serve them in various ways. I appreciate you bringing your deal angle to it uh, for, for this purpose. Um, so if people want to find out more about your services, whether they're related to deals or uh, just related to general marketing, uh, you know, external or internal, uh, what's the best place for them to go?
1: Yeah, the best place is just simply our website. It's just uglymugmarketing.com. Got our email addresses, phone numbers, all the other stuff's right there on the website.
0: All right. I was going to go to my final question, but I realized I have one in between. Any story behind uh, Ugly Mug uh, coming up with the name?
1: Yeah, actually there is. So um, there's this gentleman by the name of David Ogilvie, um, who was very popular marketer, Um, He grew a firm called Ogilvy & Mather. At one point, they were the largest in the world. They're still in the top 10 offices, literally around the world. But David Ogilvy had this saying inside his offices that was this, I would rather see an ad that's ugly and effective over one that's beautiful but isn't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for those not familiar with our industry, the, the marketing advertising industry, so much of our industry is driven by attempting to win awards you know, so the most creative design, the most this, the most that. Um, And so for us from day one, I wanted to set our North Star, not on winning awards, not on what's beautiful, but on what matters most. And that is the results for our clients.
0: Love that. Love that story. Um, Wayne, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And for me, that's uh, means freedom from for all people from oppression in the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Uh, what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business?
1: Yeah, so my answer, Corey, is this, that, um, you know, I think for me, freedom, uh, at one point, I, I clumped it as just this one word, like freedom's freedom. But what I've learned over my journey is there's actually two different types of freedom. There's freedom from, and there's freedom to. And most entrepreneurs, I believe, are seeking freedom to, freedom to set their own schedule, freedom to take off when they want, freedom to make as much money as they want, freedom to do all these things. Um, but what often I think happens is we end up in this trap of, we merely have freedom from, we now have freedom from our boss who used to tell us what to do. And so for me, it's it was this process of learning the difference between freedom from and freedom to and understanding what's required to make that jump or that bridge connect. Hmm.
0: All right, so I've got to ask one follow up, which is, and I know this is probably something we spend hours on, but highlights of what you think is required to make that jump you just talked about.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I think, you know, (laughs) not to dive into the whole subject, but, but I believe there's a big difference between growth and scale. And when you're truly scaling, it's not necessarily about a revenue number, it's not even necessarily about a rate of growth. What scaling is, is scaling is where it's no longer one plus one equals two. It's about synergy. And the key component for entrepreneurs is that synergy must take place without you. In other words, your business is scaling when your inputs no longer matter. You're still growing. The growth is taking place because of other people's inputs. And those inputs are synergistic. It's not one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals some multiple. Um, So, that, that would be skirting kind of around but that's I think the, the core of that it's it's got to be about the systems the processes that are in place the culture that is in place that enable you to have freedom to do those things
0: I love that and listen folks I mean I've seen so many entrepreneurs and I've been in stages you know of this earlier in my career before I started to understand some of the stuff that you're alluding to where you know we yeah we scaled and, and what it caused me to have is actually much less freedom less time right because it was still dependent upon me and what scaling meant was that you know my 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 freedom to control my schedule my time where I put my energy and passion actually reduced right because because it was too dependent upon me. So I, I, I love that distinction which is why I wanted to explore it a little more. Um Wayne thank you so much for being a great guest on the Deal Quest podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Corey, for your time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how
0: deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.